I moved to Moscow in January of 1995, which was about three and a half years post-communism. There was still a deficit of most products. It still looked as gloomy as, as we would see in pictures and stuff. I think by the time I got there, there was one grocery store you'd consider setting foot in. There's maybe two restaurants where you would actually enjoy the food. Hey guys, if you have any interest in working outside the U.S., then you will be riveted by this next episode. I had a longtime family friend of mine, Alvin Gillage, join me on the podcast, and he walks us through his experience working in London and subsequent to that in Moscow for several years. And this was just after the fall of communism in Russia and Eastern Europe. So he has amazing experiences from that time and then coming back to the U.S., getting started in the cosmetics industry, of all things. And he describes his time for well over a decade working in that industry and has amazing wisdom that he's accumulated over the years. And he shares that with us. Uh, so I think that you'll find it absolutely fascinating. Here's Albin. Enjoy the podcast. You have actually a very interesting uh, background because you've worked in, and you worked pretty early in your career abroad. And I think that was actually shortly after you graduated, if I'm not mistaken. It was immediately after. Immediately after. So I, yeah, and that's something so. that is, even these days, fairly unique. So maybe you could start there. Like, how, how okay. did you end up working outside the U.S.? So after graduating college, um, kind of the trend was at that age and, and our part of the country was to go back home and move into Chicago and hang out with your friends and spend your 20s doing that. Well, I knew early on, much earlier on, that I was never going to do that. The goal was always to move to Los Angeles because this is where I, I knew I would find my forever home. Um, however, when I graduated college, I didn't have any money and I didn't have a car. And therefore, <laughs> what do I do next? So, um, and you kind of have to have a car when you come to LA, despite what people say. Um, so a couple of my fraternity brothers were moving to London for a semester abroad and they invited me to come along. They had an extra you know, bed in the, in the apartment, like, Hey, this is what you'll owe for rent. It seemed to work, whatever. So I find a, um, an exchange program for students between the United Kingdom and the United States. And I was able to purchase a six month work permit. So when I arrived in the UK, I would be legal to work. Of course, it was up to me to then find a job. So I do that. I have a place to live. I have a work permit. I'm legal. Now it's pound the pavement and find the job. So I went to the program's office. I they have a big job board back in those days. Nothing was digital. So it literally was a bulletin board with a bunch of tacks and papers hanging off of it and combed through that, found a job that suited me where I thought it sounded interesting, went and applied and I got it. So at least I had my rent covered. Then um, one thing led to another and I found another job. So basically for those six months, I had two part-time jobs, lived in central London and kind of had my first big city worldly experience there. The comfort of two friends from home, living in a nice neighborhood, but definitely not in Kansas anymore, as they say, right? And certainly not in Arlington Heights, Illinois anymore. Um, that then, you know, and, but the clock was ticking. I have six months to play around. You know, I was a model during the day. I waited tables at night. Certainly nothing that made my father proud and pleased to spend, you know, money on four years of college for, for a marketing and Russian degree, both of which I was not using. Um, and literally I was at a get together on a Friday or Saturday night. It was kind of bored and it wasn't that exciting. And, and someone earlier in the week had said, 
you know, if you're looking for a job, why don't you look at, look, look in the phone book? And I was eager to use my Russian. Um, I was kind of interested in going back there. I had visited a year and a half before and, and that was kind of what I had basically been planning to do, you know, or, or grooming myself to do since I was 14 years old. So fast forward to 22, you know, now is the time. So I literally pick up this phone book. I tear out the R page where it had Russia listings, you know, bring it home and started looking at them. And I found one that was nearby. So I walk over to that office, drop off my resume. And by the time I got home, I had this lengthy uh, voice message, you know, in our, in our recording machine, of course, no one had cell phones then in Russian say, saying, you know, I had to listen to it probably 20 times. And they basically invited me in for an interview and long, longer <laughs> to prevent this story from getting longer. I ended up getting my first big boy job that sent me to Moscow in January of 1995 from this company in London, which was a project base, which is their, their headquarters for a project that had um, got received $5 million of investment to go to Moscow and start a life insurance company. And they just so happened to be looking for a marketing person who spoke Russian. And how, so, how was your Russian at the time? Were you, were you fluent? Um, no, it was textbook. I mean, I knew grammar and I had a decent vocabulary, um, but it was all textbook. And it had been almost a year and a half to two years since I really actively spoke it because I, I kind of placed out of my double major early. You know, I, I entered college with a very solid foundation in the language and I kind of, you know, the college wasn't challenging enough, quite honestly. I learned more in high school than I did in university. So, yeah. so I was rusty. Um, this job came with a, uh, you know, room and board. So they placed me with a Russian family in the center of Moscow. And that's where I really learned the language and became conversational and, and more fluent. Um, so that was very necessary to, to immerse myself that way in order to, you know, add value. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And how old were you at this time when you moved to, to Moscow? I, I had just turned 23. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, All right. so, had, so you had, had a, a grandmother and a mom and a dad and a little sister and a dog. And wow. that was, that's how I spent my twenties. Probably not ideal. <laughs> wow. Certain things didn't happen because that was my living situation, but um, nonetheless, it, it, it was what it was and it was very enjoyable and it lasted five years. So, so clearly it was, it was the right thing for me to be doing. Now that job didn't last five years. It was a two year contract, but once there you make connections, you make friends, you see what else is going on. And, you know, I thought life insurance was kind of boring. It was more of a stepping stone. So I kind of switched gears, stayed with marketing, but obviously then worked for advertising agencies that were working with big brands like Pepsi and Gillette and Coca-Cola and Mars, and, you know, all the big um, consumer good companies that were, um, you know, trying to carve out some market share in the Russian market because all this stuff was new at that time. Yeah, I was I was going to say, can you add a little context for people listening or, or right. watching? What was going on politically yeah. at that time? <laughs> a lot of stuff. So I moved to I moved to Moscow to become a, a resident um, in January of 1995, which was about three and a half years post-communism. So it still felt very communist. Um, and in that, I mean, there was still a deficit of most products. Um, it still looked as gloomy as, as we would see in pictures and stuff. Um, but it, they didn't have the, the creature comforts from the West. You know, I think by the time I got there, there was one grocery store you'd consider setting foot in. There's maybe two restaurants where you would actually enjoy the food. Um, you know, it, one day I wanted to buy my grandmother a broom because the one she was using was ridiculous. And it took me three weeks to find one, you know, so 
yeah, and they just didn't have everything. So it was pretty, it was roughing it. It was considered a hardship post. Um, and so as an expat, you get paid extra for that and you're allowed to leave once a month to go wherever you want to <laughs> kind of get back to yourself and relax. And so there were a lot of perks to this job too, to be 23 and be able to fly all over Europe once a month. I mean, who wouldn't want to do this, right? Um, so, so yeah, there was a lot of appeal. And then again, you, there were a lot of young, single, native English speakers from the US, the UK, Australia, Canada, you, you name it. And we were all there kind of in the same boat and keeping ourselves sane and having fun and, and doing what we would try and do, you know, back here. Right. So, so every time, you know, the 4th of July would come around, it was the 4th of July. It was a big deal. And we went all out and, and you know, rented a, you know, field and had fireworks and did all that stuff. Or Halloween was a big deal. And, and that sort of thing. Was there a common thread among all these other people in terms of like their personality or their their drive or what their goals were, or was it kind of just like a hodgepodge of of people? It was and it was kind of a hodgepodge, but there there were some where they were common. So like you know, at one point in my five years living there, there were eight people from my high school because we, our Russian program was so good and and so effective. Oh, wow. Okay. In fact, within my four year period, or a few few from older classmates, few younger classmates, but eight of us ended up going there in the 90s because of what we learned in Mount Prospect, Illinois in the early 80s or, or late 80s. Um, you know, and then there were others like that too who studied Russian in high school or college or, or came from Russian backgrounds. You know, families had immigrated to other countries much earlier and they go back because they have the language skills. There were others who were just there like gold diggers and they saw what was about to happen with right. the privatization of all the state-owned companies and they knew exactly what to do to make a ton of money, mm -hmm. which I had been to camp too. <laughs> but, um, you know, so it, was, it varied. And then there were people who showed up, didn't speak a word of Russian. And five years later when I left, still didn't speak a word of Russian. And oh, they wow. didn't really care. They got mm -hmm. by the way they did. And they were there purely for business reasons or, you know, Sometimes, you know, as, as comfortable as Western countries can be, for some, that's a little boring. They need the challenges. They need to wrestle with the fax machine all day to get it to go through. I don't know why, but there are people like that. So, um, and then the longer you stay there, you know, it becomes home and maybe you get married and have kids and that really becomes your life. And then you realize you can't function when you go home. Like that's the only place you can function. It, it's such a special, unique place um, that, that when you come back to, let's say, an easier country, you, you kind of you kind of freak out. And I do know people like that who stay there twenty plus years and like I don't think I can live anywhere else. Now. Wow, interesting. So I made sure that wouldn't happen to me. <laughs> for sure. So okay, so you were in Moscow for five years working different jobs, different uh, marketing jobs, but marketing. primarily uh, um, advertising. And and you decided to leave. Mm hmm. Decided to leave, uh, you know, I, I was on my third or fourth round of friends because it was a very transient place. People would come for a year or two contract and get out. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, no, no one really wanted to make that their, their life. A few of my buddies did, but most of them were like, this is a point in time, cool experience, but I've had enough and I'm leaving. So I decided that was my turn as well. And I wanted to come back and get my MBA. So that was kind of what, what drove me back. Okay. Okay. All right. So you come back to the States, you get your MBA and, mm -hmm. and then what? And then I moved to California finally and, and slept on my brother's couch in Santa Monica for a while. Um, you know, looking to switch, stay in marketing. Obviously, I have the language skills, but wanted to do international marketing for one of the studios here in L.A. And, and got my first post um, 
MBA job at MGM Home Entertainment when they were still located here in Santa Monica and um, was in the operational side. So it was the right company, but the wrong department and kind of the wrong division of the company. Um, great people. Care because you just wanted your foot in the door at the time or? Yeah, I figured if I'm in MGM in operations, that that would be easier to switch to marketing, let's say, than it would if I was just submitting a resume. Um, you know, and I tried that a few times and it didn't really work. So, um, you know, and then I have the, the, the looming obligation of paying off my business school debts, you know, staring me in the face. And around the same time that needed to start happening, I get a call from Mary Kay Cosmetics in Dallas, Texas, who were looking for a fluent Russian speaker and somebody who was comfortable going back to those countries and spending time there and working there and doing, not permanently, not but permanently. Yeah, yeah. you know, and they dangled a lot more money in front of me. So I talked to my father who, you know, well, you know, certainly he's the type to follow the money versus the quality of life or one's dreams or what one really wants to do where they see themselves. So kicking and screaming, I moved to Dallas, Texas to work for Mary Kay. Um, and I lasted about two and a half years. I knew from the moment I set off the plane, this was not going to be a long-term thing. Yeah, but it was a stepping stone, right? It was. And it's that, you know, that now, you know, maybe it's, this comes off somewhat bitter, and this is probably interesting for your listeners, because don't make these mistakes. A stepping stone to what? A career in cosmetics? Well, like, I mean, could, could like, be if... You know, there's such a thing as an old boys club. There's an old girls club, too. And, okay. and the cosmetics industry is definitely that. And if you're not if you're not one to be welcomed into the sorority, I mean, you stay at your level, you last your time, and and that's it. How soon did you figure that out? It wasn't right when you stepped off the plane, right? No, it wasn't. And 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 great. You know, I'm grateful for the experiences I had. It, you know, I, I quit my job without a job to come to. I moved back to Santa Monica, um, living with my brother. I'd saved up enough money so I wasn't on the couch anymore. Um, but you know, and I was, and and I. And again, that I was, I just presented kind of the downside of it, but the pot, the upside of it was through a contact at Mary Kay, I met my, my next boss who worked at Murat and, and she and I have similar backgrounds about the same age, both from suburban Chicago, you know, got along like a house on fire and I ended up working there for nine years. Wow. So, so while that may have not been the subject matter of my choice originally and, and something I, I thought I was really cut out for, it was a positive experience um, and kept me there that long. You know, I didn't really advance as much as I would have wanted to. So that's where I started to realize the whole sor you know, sorority thing or back, lack of a better term was kind of real. Um, and it, it was probably a mistake to stay that long. I mean, that's where I threw myself into other things in my free time. I got very involved in my community. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I guess I probably got complacent at work because these other things were more important. So the paycheck helped sustain the life I wanted outside of work, which most, most people's paychecks do. Um, but I probably didn't pay as much attention to that as I should have because I was busy with other things that, that I guess filled my soul more than my day job. Right. Um, and we'll get to that. We'll get to how that paid off at the end, I promise. Um, so yeah, so that, that job comes to an end. Um, then by that point after, in my life, sorry, after nine years, that's, that's a long, yeah, and, and incidentally, I was there five years and I left to go to another company, also cosmetics and did not like it at all. Lasted six months, quit. And Murad took me back for another four. I see. Okay. Murad is a great place. Dr. Murad and the Murad family are wonderful people. I am very grateful to have spent the time I did there. Um, 
you know, but did that prepare me for a, a future in cosmetics until I retire? No, it didn't. But I changed too. I got more into fitness and and really absorbed the LA lifestyle and and outdoors, being outdoors and our warm, beautiful weather and all that. So, so after Murad ended, I was looking for something in fitness, and I became the marketing director of Yoga Works. Not a, not something I practice personally, but a but a a practice I do respect. Mm-hmm. So I got to learn more about that. Um, and then that lasted about a year plus until a former colleague at, from your head calls me to go back into cosmetics in an international role. And I did. Money was better. The, the travel experiences were coming back to me. The downside was it was 60 miles away in Ventura. Um, but in the beginning, I only had to go in three days a week. And then, of course, that changed the floor and whatever. So so went back to that. And the first two years of that job were wonderful. Um, great people. Loved my boss. Um, the travel experiences were wonderful. Had, you know, really cool network of international distributors. I got to go visit and, you know, and, and the products I could stand behind. I mean, again, target market are women, but there were types of, it wasn't color cosmetics. It was something anybody could use. And, you know, then that kind of changed when some, some, executive team change. They were trying to change, make changing rules and regulations within the company. And then the pandemic hits. I last about a year working from home. Then they want me to come back. I'm like, do I have to? We just had a great year. And I, I've had the past year experiencing three extra hours of my day that I'm right. not driving. Yep. And we agreed to, you know, mutually part ways um, about two, two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. And while I was, you know, not terribly disappointed to not be going back there, um, you know, that the paycheck was nice <laughs> when that stops, it kind of makes you reevaluate everything in your, in your life and what comes next. And that's where, you know, and I was 49 years old at the time. So I'm pushing 50, you know, like I kind of on my way to hit my second midlife crisis. And, you know, and this, this this one was better than the first, actually, because it forced me in that whole predicament and some other changes in my life around that time, forced me to really think out of the box, push myself out of a comfort zone, take other people's advice that I may have just kind of, you know, shrugged my shoulders and laughed at thinking, no, oh, that sounds fun, but that's definitely not for me type of thing and try it all. And, and while even today I'm not back up to the salary level I would like, I'm certainly having a lot more fun. I have more free time. I am more flexible and willing to just kind of go for it if someone tosses an idea my way. And, you know, I have now 25 pushing 30 years experience to, to draw on when needed. So, um, so now you're, you're working for yourself. You're a consultant. Yes, you could say that. Yeah. Okay. So, so, and then again, coming, trying to bring this full circle um, in that time, with all my since 2007, when I returned to Santa Monica from uh, Dallas, you know, I've thrown myself heavily into my community, been on various boards and commissions. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of up to my ears and things, Santa Monica, um, which led to me running for city council last year in 2022. Um, didn't really have a full time job. Running for anything requires a ton of time. So it was a blessing almost that I didn't have a job and a boss and all that. So I could get out there and really give it a go. I did. It was an interesting experience. I learned a lot. I didn't win, but you know, I also, in my heart of hearts, probably didn't expect to, I entered late. I didn't raise enough money. I kind of, whatever, mm-hmm. fumbled some of it next time I'll be smarter. But 
the, an indirect result of doing that was I raised my profile. I got, I met new people. I got involved in other things and then I get offered a job after that. You know, so, so what started in, let's say July of 2022 resulted in me becoming, I guess, a, a consultant on retainer by February of 2023. And, you know, which is what I'm still doing, which is what keeps me here now. And, you know, that once this project I'm working on fully kicks off, it's likely to morph into a full-time job mm. doing, you know, probably until I, until I don't do it. So, um, and, and that's been wonderful that, that, this is the first time, I guess, in all my years being out there, I've been hired to be me, to do stuff I'm good at, and that comes naturally, and that I technically have been doing for free mm-hmm. for almost 20 years. Hmm. I volunteer, and that's my nature. So that feels good. And I think the moral of that story is, if you know you're good at something, if you will do the job for free, that's what you should be doing. Oh, that's fascinating. And I would have never done a cosmetics job for free sit in an office all day and and do that some people might and if that's your calling go do it because that's that's the right thing for you i've learned enough about myself over the years to know i need to be out talking to people i need to be up and walking around um i need to be outside you know so what is that you know maybe i should have been a landscape architect or or something and really i mean or something that use my hands and and not stare at screens and type all day hmm so you this age, you can't get away from doing that sometimes. Right. But, but like in these computer programmers, which I know is a great job and very needed, and it's probably the heart of our, our tech industry and our futures, but I don't know how they do it. <laughs> I don't know how they physically sit there and do that. Um, God love them for it, but mm-hmm. I guess that's not what they cut out for. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So when you look back, I, I mean, is, you think that you, or maybe you would say that you absolutely know with hundred hundred percent certainty that you would, you would have taken a different path. Um, if you knew yeah. then what you know now, after two and a half decades of, of working and navigating corporate life, yeah. that sort of thing. And, and I will say though, and, and this is a big topic now with college debt, having debt stare you in the face is really scary and it mm-hmm. prevents certain, certain decisions from being made. Like I couldn't go out and take risks because I had to pay X amount, a hundred thousand. How do you whatever. avoid that though? How do you avoid it? I don't know. I mean, I have friends who do rich parents, scholarships, you know, most whatever. people don't have I, rich parents and most people don't get at least scholarships in an amount that would eliminate, let's say half, even half of your tuition. Yeah, I, I really don't have the answer. I mean, here I'm 21 years out of business school and I'm still paying that loan off. Hmm. So, and and that really is not what's intended when you take that. You're meant to like soar and 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 get to higher salary levels, where it's like here's the twenty grand I owe. Now we're done. Well, that never happened. So, so I, I feel for anybody, you know, coming out of college at twenty two and looking at a couple hundred thousand dollars. I don't know how that ha- I don't know how that works. Yeah, um, I have not succeeded at that. But I will say though chipping away at that will be a lot easier and more rewarding if you're doing something you like to earn the money to, to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so if there is a way, if you have to start in something that you're not in love with, you know, it's, they say it's easier to find a job when you have one, be looking for that next thing and don't get complacent. Don't stay there nine years. Um, and, and really try and, and move into what, what else it is you like. And the thing is a lot of stuff, like I'm also at a point in life too, even with this job I, I currently have, I'm doing other stuff and I don't see myself doing one thing anymore. 
I found several things I like and, you know, not every, not all of them are every day, but that's what makes it possible then. Right. I mean, you work a 40 hour week who really works 40 hours. I mean, some people do, some people work even more than that, but let's face it. If you have something else, you can either carve out an hour here or there to do something. You can make that happen. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so a lot of my other things are like that an hour here, an hour there, maybe after hours, maybe after five or six o'clock, you have a later meeting, whatever it is. You know, so I, I wouldn't say no to things you like. You figure out how to squeeze them in. Yeah. You know, if that helps pay the bills. If it stresses you out, then don't do it. But <laughs> right. So would you say that it's kind of rare for the value um, of a graduate degree, let's say, um, like the the value of that degree, it's it's not it's not realized when you look at the cost to get that graduate degree. So I'm not talking about undergrad. Which yeah. look at the end of the day, it, it there are diff, there are cheaper ways to get significantly cheaper ways to get an undergrad degree. You can go to community college for you know the first two years, then you could transfer to a four year four year school, um, and it could be in state public. And you're, you're you are limiting the amount of debt that you incur. But for grad school, you know, I, I feel like especially in in our society, um, and you know, depending on the profession, but whether it's engineering, business, even computer science, marketing, whatever, uh, it is you, you almost feel like you're at a disadvantage if you don't have an MBA or you don't whatever the graduate degree is. Yeah. But, but is that perception reality? At least based on your experience in, in your area. I didn't do it a different way. So I can't say like, would Mary Kay have not have hired me if I didn't have an MBA? For that particular job, I think they would have because they were looking for somebody who spoke Russian and knew marketing. Yeah. You know, but but that's not to say like it, it, it's a confidence boost. It may put you above others. Um, I, I think it does depend where you get the MBA from. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't go to Harvard, so the doors didn't fly open like like they probably would for somebody who did. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's a tough one. It's a tough one. It's you know, there's definitely an opportunity cost, and I think if you're in a career and it's going well, I don't know why I would interrupt that. And you like what you're doing, and you see growth. Why would you interrupt that for you know an expensive MBA? I mean, if you want to do it part time and figure out how to pay for it and all that, fine. But you know, to stop cold turkey and jump into a full time program. So you're not yeah. making any money. You have living expenses. You have the school to pay for. You know that that becomes really daunting to 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 recover after that. Yeah. So I don't regrets. I don't regret learning more. So I'm never going to say I wish I didn't do it because I did learn more. And I and, and let's face it, MBAs and graduate programs are they're a lot for the networking too, and who else you meet in these programs. Mm -hmm. These you get beyond the classroom. So I think there's right. a lot of value that and and that you can't really get other places I mean, you can always network in different environments but when you're in the trenches with somebody with a team and co-workers or fellow students whatever for two years you really get to know each other yeah and college number two and you have lifelong friends and all that good stuff so you know it, it it becomes kind of who you are at that point but but is if someone's really looking at their life's expenses and and you know how much money they want to accumulate by the time they die well, MBA might inhibit those goals. Yeah. So in, in, in all of the situations that you've been successful, what do you think are the characteristics that propelled you to that success? I'm nice. 
You're nice. You are nice. I don't, I don't burn bridges. I don't disrespect people. Um, I don't write nasty emails and, and, and I, you know, or leave a paper trail of that. I mean, I, I, you know, everyone gets in a mood and wants to tell somebody off, but you know, make sure you calm down before you actually do that. Especially if you're in an industry like cosmetics, where if I were to stay in that, I don't know who could end up being my boss. Hmm. Three companies from now, somebody I worked with at the first job and we didn't get along and suddenly, you know, now they're the ones who decide whether or not I get hired. Yeah. You know, that it, it's just not worth it. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, when sometimes being too nice can prevent you from, you know, sometimes nice guys finish last too. So, so I also have identified some places in my life where maybe that contributed to not being further along by now. Yeah. And that, but I mean, to your point, that doesn't mean that you have to be mean. It's just that maybe, right. well, I, I mean, how, how would you describe it? If you're not, if you're not, um, let's say progressing to where you want to get to, or maybe you have a manager or there are, you know, peers, uh, coworkers that, that you have to work with that are, let's say abrasive in their, in their personality, you know, just being nice and respectful to them may not, it may not work. And it's not to say that you have to be the inverse of that, but what are some of the other strategies that you've employed? You know, part of it, again, it depends on the nature. Every company has politics, even if it's Mm -hmm. just two people. Right. So you get to bigger ones and then there's a lot yeah. more and and there is a game to be played. And if and if you're not on board with that, like you do your job and you you put in your time and you're not making mistakes or whatever. That's one thing. But but then like, but are you really in with them? Like, do you sit and gossip? Do you, you know, I don't know. I, there, there were a lot of behaviors I've noticed along the way that just aren't me. And because I didn't participate in that or fully swallow the Kool-Aid, I was kind of left out. I don't know if they thought just, you know, I was judging them because they're being nasty about somebody and I'm not or or whatever it was. I wasn't really kind of in the in crowd because I didn't really like the behavior of the in crowd mm-hmm. Like in high school. If someone was doing drugs or smoking. I'm not hanging around that. It's not me. So, right. So that doesn't go away with people. That's a human nature. It, it, it turns up, turns up throughout your entire life, takes on different shapes and forms, but it's there. And and. You know, in these in these cases, I feel like I was on the outs because I wasn't, you know, on the in. Yeah, and, and, and you can't, but you can't really avoid that in many in many cases. You can no, just control. No. You only control your own behavior, right? Your own work, your own work product, your productivity, etc. And and if that's going to be the the situation that you find yourself in, unbeknownst to you when you're interviewing for the position, then it's probably not the right place for you. Right. right. And then you don't, don't always know who likes you, who doesn't. So you have to watch what you say. I mean, there were instances, certainly in Mary Kay, where things would come back months later, like, I heard you said this. I'm like, what? You know, I don't even remember it. And then they explain it. And, and, and maybe part of it was true or familiar, but it was taken way out of context. That's interesting. And why do you think, yeah, why do you think it was taken out of context? Because they didn't know me. Like what, one incident I'm thinking of, it was, you know, I, I was being myself and saying I would do this. And then months later, it's like, well, it came across as you would do this to butter up to the boss so you could get promoted. I'm like, what? Hmm. Okay. You know, I mean, and, and I'll, I'll spare you the boring details of, of what that was, but it was just so, so ridiculous. And I started laughing. <laughs> like, okay. You know, but things like that. So, so you have to be, you don't know who's watching. I mean, some of these companies almost feel like they have secret police and some, 
you know, so someone will go and then tell the boss, so-and-so did this at the meeting and, da, 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 and it comes back to you. And that's why we'd never put anything controversial in writing. Mm. Like, watch in emails. And it's it limited to emails, right? Messaging, apps, texting. Anything, anything where there's proof or that you might say something and it's taken in a different way. I mean, you can't express tone in writing as much. So yeah. you might think you're being okay, blah, blah, blah. And then someone's totally offended because they think you meant it in a nastier way or something, whatever. I would say if you have an issue with somebody, deal with it in person. Totally. Yeah, I agree with that. hundred um, percent. What, when you look back at your career, what are some of the um, mistakes, some of the bigger mistakes that you've made um, that you would, you would tell or instruct your younger self <laughs> to avoid? Yeah. yeah. Don't stay somewhere too long. I mean, see the writing on the wall. If you're a manager for a couple of years, you're not, you know, and, and other people become senior manager or director, you're probably not going to get it. Hmm. So if you're not doing what you want to do, if you're using something as a stepping stone to pay the bills, all right, well, figure out what it is you do like earlier on if you can. Um, that can help you pay the bills. Maybe it's it's volunteering at something to, to test the waters or yeah. whatever. But but, you know, if you're not if you're sure, go for it. If you're not sure, then try and figure it out earlier because it just makes the rest of your work life more enjoyable. Hmm. Um, say the money will come. And, you know, I tend to believe that <laughs> it hasn't come in the way I would have liked so far, but but it it hasn't not come per se. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, I do think there's some truth in that. And and you just have to find the right fit for yourself and, and know your interests, know what you're good at, know what you don't like for sure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know. and, and so a, a lot of listeners are going to be college students or recent grads, people really early in their career as well. Uh, what are some common mistakes that you, you may not have made, but you've observed others make that you would, um, you know, advise people listening or watching? Yeah. Uh, I think when you, when one thing I guess I've kind of done it to in a, in a smaller scale and certainly seen it in others is so you get your first job, you're all educated from a great school or, you know, grad school, undergrad, whatever it is. And they're hiring you because you're so awesome and you're going to go in and fix everything. And then in your first week, you're like, what do we do this? And I try that. And what, why, why are you doing that? I mean, keep in mind, you're talking to people who've been there a lot longer. Things are the way they are for a reason. It might be, it might not be right, but it got there somehow. So you kind of have to just shut up and listen and observe before and, and kind of get people to like you and trust you before you start suggesting change and correcting things and all that, because, and there's usually 101 reasons why something is the way it is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are really out there and crazy. And it's like, you know, why do we have, why are 12 inches in a foot? Probably because an English King hundreds of years ago's foot was that big. Well, in family companies and in, in smaller companies, that type of reasoning still happens. It is this way because the boss said so. That's it. Mm -hmm. No more or less. And so if you start to question that and make fun of it or be like, huh, too weirded out by it, well, it could come back and haunt you because mm -hmm. the person who started the company, you know, said it that needed to be that way. But it's kind of a balancing act too, right? You don't want to, I mean, yes, I you you want to be a sponge. And I think that actually applies to somebody not just starting their first job, but starting any job in their career because they're at a new company and they have to absorb 
information. They have to observe how people interact with each other, uh, sort of get get um, a lay of the land. But you also, even in your first job, you you don't want to stay silent for too long. So no. Right. It is kind of a balancing act in that sense. You know, when the time is right, you find somebody there who maybe feels the same way or you, you know, get chummier with your boss and be like, hey, I noticed this. It seems like you know, I have some ideas on how to improve it. Mm -hmm. Be gentle with it. Watch your language. Like, not this sucks. This is all wrong. Who did this? More like, hey, I've been working on this. And when I was in school, we did a project and we tried something similar and we did it a different way. You know, you could, you could just let it be known you know that because that, mm -hmm. that's what's drive your career and move you forward. I mean, you know, very few people hire somebody to be a yes man. Right. I mean, there are people who do, so you have to watch out for that. But, but others like bring, you know, bring the fresh ideas, bring what the future is, um, you know, and, and keep in mind too, that a lot of people are really resistant to change, especially the older you get, the harder that becomes. So if you're in an older established company, you big behemoth company, you know, which we have plenty in this country, um, you're going to see a lot of that. Someone who's been there 20 or 30 years and is pushing retirement, they're not interested in changing anything mm -hmm. or big stuff. They're not interested in more work. Right. Um, and change usually means more work. Mm. Interesting. And skill. Yeah. So I think you have to really know who's involved and, and approach it in the right way. I mean, you know, if you feel passionate about it and you're there for a reason, they hired you because you're good at that sort of thing. You don't be silent about it, but you know, know that Rome wasn't built in a day and you're not going to incorporate new processes and procedures into a company in, in a day either. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so coming out of college undergrad, let's say, what are some of the skills that, um, that you think would benefit people the most to possess? Because I mean, let's face it in undergrad. Yeah. You, you, you accumulate knowledge, mm -hmm. but, not much of that, unless maybe you're studying engineering or computer science. And e even then, this may not, um, you know, what you learn in undergrad may not be entirely transferable or, or applicable in, in the real world when you start working. But like, what are some of the skills that you think would be most beneficial for somebody who's just starting out in their career to, to possess? It could be soft skills, hard skills, a combination of both. Well, in terms of soft skills, I mean, writing since everything's in writing now email texting you know whatsapp you name it um and i don't mean with the cute little abbreviations and partial words and misspellings i mean proper writing mm -hmm. you know and, and with etiquette um when you're in the business world like that should always be where you go to and if you become more comfortable with people and you can bring in your you know, more casual way of doing things then then fine but at least in the beginning proper writing knowing how to interact with people in person, you know, that's, that's falling to the wayside because everyone's in their screens and using apps to meet and this, do this and that. Well, nothing is a substitute for an in-person interaction. Yeah. Go out to lunch, you know, get to know your colleagues. I mean, you're going to spend a huge chunk of your, of your life, your day, your hours of the week, your wake up waking hours with these people. Mm -hmm. I mean, find a friend or two, or at least try and enjoy it somehow and, and bond. It makes the job so much easier. And you actually end up getting more done and you enjoy and the time flies by quicker and, and all that good stuff that comes along with it. In terms of harder skills, um, you know, people graduating, and I, I think this just kind of has happened, comes naturally, but like knowing technology, like knowing how to 
get into these apps and post the TikTok video and use social media. If you're in the marketing or publicity world at all, you have to know that stuff. Yeah. I mean, an old dog who's been taught that new trick over the past few years. And, and I now consult businesses on it and I taught a class about it and it really is a thing, whether we like it or not, it's here mm-hmm. and it managing, but it can be very beneficial. So, and it can make you money. It can, it's keep advertising, you know, whatever, however you want to look at it and use it, but, but that's, it's not going away. So you need to know Instagram, you need to know TikTok, you know, Facebook kind of, you know, LinkedIn is more of the professional one, but the, these big ones, Twitter, probably for your regular communications. Um, that's, that's really a thing. Yeah. What about, as you were talking, I was thinking one, one skill, probably a soft skill. Uh, actually, I'm not sure where this would land. It's kind of like it, it, it's right on the cusp of a hard skill. And, and that is uh, the art of negotiating because you're constantly mm-hmm. negotiating with people, right? Uh, yep. You're negotiating to get, um, you know, certain terms of your own employment. Right. You're, you're negotiating with other people to include a certain feature, let's say, in a product or a service that's being you know, built or marketed at that time. Uh, and I I suspect that there is not a class in undergrad in most undergrad programs, the art of negotiating. Uh, I had it in law school and it probably is in a, a topic covered uh, in MBA programs, but not at the mm-hmm. undergrad level, I don't think. Would you agree with that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, life is a negotiation. Yes. You know, some easier than others. You have, you're married, you have a partner, whatever, negotiating yeah. about everything in that situation. So, you know, and, and the thing is too, in business, like everybody wants to win. If you're in a competitive environment, like, so how do you make it so everybody does win? Yeah. Or get, get a piece of what, what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. You, know, you buy a new car. I want 10,000. Okay. I'll offer you eight. Great. We'll settle on nine. You know, that's, that's, you know, a very basic one, but, but that that's life. Yeah. You know, some, some countries are bolder about it. You go to other parts of the world. I mean, buying an apple is a negotiation, you know, at an open market in some places, you know, here, not so much. And I think we get lazier about that because we don't haggle prices on a daily basis when we're shopping for food, but in other parts of the world, they do. And, and as a result, a lot of those people are much better at business because they apply that to everything. Yeah, yeah definitely. That's and funny. So I think you need to be bold about it. Um, and I would also bring it, bring in your own creativity too. I mean, we live in a very creative time where new things are popping up where you never would have thought that could have happened. And here it is. I mean, driverless cars go up and down my street all the time now. So, and, and Coco oh. is bring your food in a little robot you know, up and down my sidewalk. So like someone thought of that and like it probably got laughed at and then now is brought to life and it's, it's, it's part of everyday life. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold back on that. And if you're mm-hmm. in an environment that doesn't, doesn't uh, value that, do it on the side, write down your own, you know, start a side project. You know, don't just because you are employed and you work eight hours or 40 hours a week or whatever it is, you know, there's still a lot more life out there. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I think that's complacency is it can be comfortable, but then it also can be it can be your enemy, too. And you don't want to be too complacent ever. And, and discomfort and and, and um, disruption is actually a good thing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last question for you. Um, would you encourage graduates to 
seek employment abroad? Is that something like, I mean, you worked for several years outside of the country. Do you think that was one of the periods in your, in your career, in your life, where you grew the most? Yes. I mean, especially that time, I think we're still growing up in our 20s. So that that was then. I will say, though, at the, the time I was there, like there's an opportunity cost for everything. So while I was there having a unique experience, having fun and then making better money than I would have made back, back here, whatever, I missed the tech boom. I missed mm -hmm. the Internet. Right. So I can't come back and like, what's going on? Like, what are these companies? Yeah, you know, of course, you hear about it around the world, but you're not it's not part of your every day as much. So, so while, you know, I wouldn't trade that experience, I'm very glad I did it. It makes me who I am. Um, you know, make sure that you can, when you come back from that experience, you're integrating back in, in a, at the same level or higher. Interesting. Okay. However, however you can do that. Um, you know, and I think probably the better way or easier way would be like, have a job here that sends you overseas. So you're working for a big multinational company and that opportunity comes up and you toss your hat in the ring and they choose you. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one way. I mean, if you're at, you're at the, you know, the mercy of somebody else making that decision for you versus just showing up in a country you want to live in. Hopefully you speak the language and here I am, you know, what can I do? You know, that that's more the adventurous way of doing it and you'll learn it and you'll have great stories to tell your kids and grandkids someday. Um, is that the most lucrative? Is that going to help pay off some loans? Maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. It really is going to depend on on your comfort level with risk. Right. Yeah. But I, I mean, I do encourage people to undertake more risk than they're typically comfortable with, yeah. especially, especially at your age. You have less yeah. to lose. Yeah, you do. I mean, you're going to wake up married with kids someday and then you're not moving to another country <laughs> to do that for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I, I would try it. I mean, what's the worst case? You go for a year, you're trying to figure things out. It doesn't work. You come home. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. Where you go there, and it becomes, you know, changes your life forever in many different ways. Mm -hmm. so you never know until you try it. Yeah, and and again, it it seeing the rest of the world getting out of our bubbles is probably the most valuable thing we can do. Yeah, and it creates understanding. It ideally, hopefully, prevents wars. <laughs> and and you know, we're getting smaller and smaller as everything comes together with technology and everything that you know you can't not do that. Yeah. No, totally. All right. And where, where can people find you? Well, um, <laughs> it's multiple places, I guess. You can email me at samoalbin, S-A-M-O-A-L-B-I-N, at gmail.com. Or you can hit me up on Instagram at samoalbin also, but it's S-A-M-O underscore Albin, A-L-B-I-N. Awesome. And my two favorite places to go, yeah. <laughs> the places I hang out the most. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Alvin. This was great. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Office IQ. If you're looking for ways to accelerate your path to success, you can find more resources like this on our YouTube channel or at officeintelligence.com. We offer courses and other content that will literally change the direction of your career for the better. If there are any topics you'd like to hear more about or questions you'd like me to address on future episodes, you can send an email to jeff at officeintelligence.com.